um, and maybe hardy like a cactus or something like that as well rolled into one. <laughs> I would love to see a cactus, uh, a rose, and the third one that you said together, and that that can be kind of representative of a scale up, right? You've got to be sturdy. You have a, a little amount of water sometimes, but you've got to grow. You have to have your defenses and be strong enough to um, attack against any unwarranted competition. Uh, but you have to have the look of a rose and you have to smell good to your customers. And you also have to be durable and long lasting. So I'm excited as we learn here today from you, Aaron, about how you've grown growing flowers. It's going to be good. <laughs> now we're here live on the Scale Up Valley podcast where we talk to scale up heroes, individuals who grow their businesses past a startup into the scale up phase, which enters an entirely new part of uh, an entirely new set of problems. Just like my grandmother's rose bush that I always had a hard time understanding why we had to clip and prune it for it to grow. And that was one of the crazy lessons I learned that I still think about all the time is that in order for something to grow, you actually have to clip off the stuff that's not growing. Now, as a professional speaker, I'm always growing. If I were a flower, I would be some sort of ginger flower. But today I'm gonna be sitting back in the garden listening to you two talk about lessons learned with your company, Bloom and Wild. So Mr. Mike, I'm gonna pass the mic to you and I will be taking notes and doodling. Here's what we have so far as a beginning. And my brain will translate a lot of the things that are said today. So. Mike, take it away. Looking forward to meeting and getting to know you here, Mr. Aaron. Thank you, Ryan, for the introduction. And thank you, Aaron, for joining us uh, today. Really a pleasure to, to host you. And yeah, so uh, let us know a little bit more about your career until the moment that you decided to start up uh, Bloom and Well. I didn't come to the company with any previous flower or really any tech experience. I used to work um, as a consultant with um, companies in retail technology and consumer products and services. So through that, I became really interested in what makes a great company, what makes um, a company that customers really love. And I was also really interested in some of the emerging direct consumer brands that were popping up that I was a customer of. There are Obviously, lots of great ones over in the US. There are some brilliant ones here in the UK. An example of a company I really liked was one called Graze, which uh, does snacks through uh, the mailbox. And I come from a family of entrepreneurs, so I hadn't been an entrepreneur myself before this, but my dad is an entrepreneur. Both my granddads were entrepreneurs. One of my granddads started a chocolate company, which I always thought was really cool. <laughs> and so I started to think about whether I would start something myself one day whether I could use what I'd learned working with retail and tech and whether I might be able to build a direct-to-consumer brand of my own. Amazing. And, uh, and yeah, tell me, what, what, what does Bloom and Wild exactly, what is the value position? Sure. So Bloom and Wild is a direct-to-consumer flower gifting company. Our mission is to make sending and receiving flowers the joy that it should be. And we do this uh, differently to other uh, online flower companies in a few ways. We make it super easy to order flowers on a mobile device. It literally takes seconds. It's a really beautiful experience. We put a huge amount of work into user experience and um, into our floristry design, which is a big source of advantage. What we're most known for though is the recipient experience we create as a gifting company. And this is because we do flowers that fit through people's mailboxes. 
So in the UK, we have uh, slots in our doors with uh, little flaps on them, which your mail goes through. And this that your lots of, you know, your letters and various other small parcels that you can order can actually come through your mailbox and onto your, uh, the mat of your hallway inside your house. And we have developed packaging that makes it possible to do this with flowers, which means that the recipient does not need to be at home to receive the flowers. And the sender doesn't need to ruin the surprise by checking whether the recipient is going to be home. <laughs> and the recipient opens the uh, slim packed box and arranges the flowers themselves. So we give not only beautiful flowers, which come relatively in bud, um, so they last a long time, um, but also a creative experience of getting to arrange the flowers. We provide instructions and, and stuff like that. So people really enjoy uh, learning to be their own florist when receiving our flowers as well. Amazing concept. Uh, I found it fascinating the way you have kind of, um, I would say, innovated so much a very um, old school industry and you really are making it a fast growing industry uh, again. And um, yeah, tell, tell us a little bit more about what is the stage of the company where you are in. So what is the ad count at this stage uh, at Bloom and Wild? Yeah, uh, we're a team of 80 people now at Bloom and Wild. So we've uh, grown quite rapidly. I started business about six years ago. Uh, all people are at our, um, almost all of those people are at our head office in London. A couple of people work remotely for various reasons. And mm -hmm. Uh, those people do a combination of technology and digital product and um, our physical product and operations, customer delight, uh, marketing, brand, data, and a couple of other bits and pieces. But those are the main areas. We, uh, we don't pack the flowers ourselves. We outsource the packing of flowers to our growers. So there are no, uh, none of our staff are physically uh, packing the flowers, preparing the bouquets for our customers. Got it. And in terms of the markets where you are playing, so we will start in the UK and I think that you have already expanded to another market in, in Europe, right? That's right. We started in the UK and now we're in Germany, France and Ireland as well. And we hope to open in further markets across Europe uh, in the future. We don't have offices in those markets. So, so one of the things we've learned is that we can run all of those markets from our office here in London. So we have a team of German and French people uh, native speakers and um, who are from those countries working on uh, those markets, but from this office. Got it. And can you give us uh, an idea about in terms of the interval of revenues where, where you stand at, at this stage? Yeah, we're in the tens of millions now of pounds of revenue or dollars. Well done, amazing. Uh, I always share with, with our audience and repeating it again for the ones who are listening us for the first time, there is only 4% of all companies who surpass the 1 million US dollars in revenue and only 0.04% the 10 million. So if you are in the 10 millions um, of pounds, which is stronger than dollars, uh, you are less than 0.04% of the market. So uh, congratulations, that's, that's an amazing milestone. Thank uh, you. And let's keep going to the 100 million uh, and, and celebrate it uh, again with another podcast. Um, so in terms of funds uh, raises, we will go a little bit deeper later in the show. Let's can you give just an overview um, of 
what are your main investors and how much did you raise until now? Sure. So you want me to give that overview now about investors? Uh, yeah. Yeah, if, if you don't mind, just uh, what are your main investors and what is the overall um, uh, raised amount? And then we go deeper uh, later in the show. Sure. Um, yeah, so we have uh, we've raised uh, capital five times now. We raised two rounds of seed funding from uh, angel investors based here in the UK to begin with. And then we've raised three rounds of institutional funding. Um, the first round from a UK-based uh, venture capital firm called MMC. The second round from a German uh, venture capital firm called Burda Principal Investments. And then the third round from a UK growth equity firm called Piper, um, who specialize in investing in brand-focused companies. And our total amount raised to date is um, a little over 22 million pounds or a bit more than $30 million. Well then, and yeah, moving a little bit forward, we always obsess in the show uh, about the importance of focus, alignment, and accountability when we are scaling. And a way to really get all the team uh, focused on what needs to get done to achieve the PI or the long-term vision, uh, we need to define the big rocks quarter after quarter aligned with the mid-term and the long-term. So uh, how do you assure that your team is crystal clear about what needs to get done in the next quarter and how it serves the long-term? Do you have any process in place for this? Yeah, like many companies, we use an OKR, objectives and key results type process. So yeah. we start with a really long-term uh, goal. So at the moment, we're working towards a goal of being the UK's leading uh, flower company by 2022 and building a similar size business outside the UK to in the UK by that time. And I think people understand that. They understand that that will and help us achieve our mission of making sending and receiving flowers the joy that it should be. And it's something that we can hang our plans and budgets off. So that's the starting point. From that, we um, drop down into setting uh, objectives um, and key results every six months. And every six months rather than every three months, because we think it's uh, sufficient and we don't want to constantly be sort of remaking plans. I think it gives people long enough to and to really achieve what they want to get done and to have time to try stuff out and uh, implement it if it works or not. So that's the business cycle we work on. I think it keeps people more energized and doing it every three months. So we go through the OKR process in April and in October. It's also when we um, you know, review everybody on the team's performance, when we look at um, promotions and uh, changing people's pay. So lots of stuff happens in parallel and it works well with our business cycle. And we have three peaks in the flower business in the UK in particular, which are Christmas, Valentine's Day, and then Mother's Day, which is in March in the UK. So doing a, a review process after that in April makes sense. And then we do our budget and the other one at October, so six months apart from that and before we come into our peak season. We, the way that we do it is as a uh, exec team, we agree a set of um, company-wide objectives and a few key results and a few supporting uh, initiatives that are cross-team initiatives. 
And then we really leave it to people's teams to figure out what their team OKRs and individual OKRs are. So I try to stay quiet. And we just give the guidance of company-wide OKRs so that there's something to build on. But then beyond that, they can they can really work on it themselves and come up with their own objectives, which I think is much more empowering than being told what your objectives need to be. Got it. Uh, it's a very nice process, and I, I like the the cycle of every six months and the way you organize uh, your business around it. Uh, something that was very interesting is without asking this, I, I just asked the big rocks, and you clearly uh, went through the mission and the vision. Do you think as you scale that you need as a CEO to repeat it more often to the team, especially when you have new people coming on board? So, so how do you overlap also the feeling as a CEO of kind of being boring to repeat something that it's so clear for you, but maybe yeah. some people have never heard of? Yeah, it's, it's boring. Um, I worry about it being boring for the people that know it. So it is a difficult balance. And I try to read the room and make sure that I'm repeating messages enough for new people or people who are maybe like less engaged with the company's performance because, you know, they work in a function that's like something in some cases quite narrow, but then not boring for people who've heard it a hundred times before. So I try and, uh, in an engaging way, try to um, use humor, try not to talk for too long, try to have other people help me share important messages so that people aren't just listening to me. And all of those things have helped me strike that balance. Good. And kind of going from strategy and defining priorities to a little bit of thinking about the team and how do you structure the team to achieve those priorities and to move the company forward. And something that always comes to, to my mind is uh, that you, that what worked in the past quarters in terms of structure of the team might not work in the upcoming quarters. So and it's usually very difficult to change positions uh, when it was a success in the past, but might be a failure in the future. So what were the main, um, the main limits or the main thresholds where you felt that you needed to kind of change the team. So from 25 people to 50 people, from 50 yeah. people to 70 people. So where did you feel the system breaking that you need to do something in terms yeah. of the way you structure the team? To be honest, we haven't had like a single correction point where we've said, you know what, we're going to like fire our team and get a new team in, or we're going to like restructure what functions we've got or anything like that. We've actually had a pretty consistent structure for the last uh, four or five years, so since very early on. And um, I've had similar set of people reporting to me throughout that period. Each team has grown, as the team has grown, but we haven't changed what teams we've had. The exceptions are we created an international team a couple of years ago in order to start work on um, our expansion into Germany and France, which was important because we didn't have the skills for that in our existing team, and we thought it was important to have PL owners of those markets. Um, and the other thing we've done differently is that we've created a retention team as our customer base has got bigger, and now the majority of our revenue comes from returning customers rather than new customers. So it's actually quite a different type of marketing discipline to uh, market to your existing customers and 
you know, be able to make the product more personalized to them, understand their needs more, which is quite different to um, trying to get people who've not heard of or used Blooming World to try us for the first time. These have been the two biggest changes we've made. But apart from that, it's been a relatively sort of gradual development of each team's got bigger as uh, its job has got more complicated and, um, and scaled more. Got it. Um, it's something that is always very difficult for a company that is scaling and for a CEO, it's to keep building the leadership and avoiding to hire a VP of a certain function too early or too late. So yeah. hiring the right people on the right timing. So where did you start building your leadership team in what functions and how it has been evolving until now? I started the company with a co-founder named Ben. And Ben and I always agreed that I would be the person running the company in the long term, and he would uh, work with me on it for the first couple of years, but he wasn't going to sort of be a long-term co-founder. You know, his interest is in getting companies off the ground more, so he's now gone on to start something else. And so after a couple of years, we decided that Ben would move on and that we would hire a COO to replace him. And uh, Phil, our COO, joined um, about four years ago. He's been a um, really excellent COO, and I've really um, enjoyed running the company with him, and we've, we work really well together. So that was the first like, leadership hire I made. Shortly after that, we raised our first um, venture capital uh, funding, as I mentioned, from MMC Ventures. And... When that happened, we agreed that we would build out a bit more of a proper leadership team. And we hired leaders in each of um, brand growth, marketing, and technology at that point to build our first leadership team. And actually, two of those three people are still here today. And the third one uh, left um, about um, a year or so ago, and we uh, replaced her with somebody else. So that was a change. But Actually, our leadership team has been really stable since very early on. So most of those people have been here since uh, 2015. And then it's expanded a little bit. So we've added functions. I mentioned international, I mentioned retention. We've also uh, formalized areas like HR and finance. So we now have uh, leaders in those areas as well, which we didn't have when we started. But actually, the structure of our leadership team has not changed very much since, um, since we set it up four years ago. Interesting point that you just mentioned about uh, having people focus more on the international markets. Uh, it's always a mess as a CEO from what I see in, in scale-ups in, in this matrix organizations. Should the guys from the market, the international markets or new markets ever, ever sit in the leadership team? Should they report to sales? Uh, should they report directly to the CEO? So how did you make it? So what, what kind of positions did you... Yeah. Uh, create and how it did work out to start those new markets. Yeah, so we have country manager for each of France and Germany, and they jointly report to me and to Phil, the COO. Um, we have, and we have relatively small international teams, so there are a couple of other people working alongside the country manager for each market, but actually we haven't replicated the entire structure for each market, and we don't think we need to. We've instead um, decided to grow our central teams in areas like marketing and technology so that those teams can 
serve international markets as well as um, our UK market and be kind of like an internal center of excellence that uh, figures out the best way of scaling our tech platform or scaling our growth and marketing channels and attribution and then rolling that out across all markets. It's also interesting when I was hearing you, I was thinking that this kind of industry and this kind of company could be definitely a very operations heavy business if you would kind of go with the temptation of having a lot of people in the ground kind of taking care of delivery etc etc and i see that you are taking a lot of care of making the company scalable and assuring that the output is always great uh, higher than the input or the the team members so is this something uh, something that you are doing uh, in a how can i say on purpose or it is this something that is just happening as as you go through the no, it's very important for us to keep it scalable. We don't want to grow the team too much. I think, you know, partly we want to, you know, be on a, a track towards profitable growth. Uh, partly we think that growing the team uh, too fast disturbs the culture, uh, means that people know each other less well, makes it more complicated to figure out who's doing what. People's jobs overlap with each other more and more. You have bigger meetings, things happen more slowly. So for a number of reasons, we tried not to get let team get too big. And I think that that sort of really helped us. And yeah, so we, we just covered a little bit how to prioritize, uh, how to assure balance between long-term, mid-term and short-term. We also talk about people, how you change the structure as you move forward. What VPs do you do uh, hire first in your scaling up stage? And going a little bit to execution, um, so sometimes when I, especially on, on the pre-series I or series A, when I talk with people early on, uh, especially without um, leadership experience before, uh, and when I ask, do you have a weekly meeting or a daily stand-up or a monthly meeting or a quarterly meeting, and it seems that I'm an alien asking uh, what the hell do I need that because we meet every single day, we have coffees together, we have lunch together, so we don't need those kind of meetings. So what do you think about having those meetings and, and, and kind of leading those meetings is really productive and creates results? Yeah, so we do have those meetings and I think it's important to have them. We have a weekly team-wide stand-up. Uh, for me, the main purpose of this is transparency and we use it for people who are leading different areas to share um, how you know, results are in those areas and, and to share priorities. We also use it for project updates for um, important things that are going on that are, affect multiple areas of the company. So this helps with communication and avoiding people duplicating work with each other. And we use it to celebrate success, recognize people who've made um, great contribution and things like that. So those happen every Monday lunchtime and I think they're important. And I think everybody, we, we shake up the format every few months. We also have a different host every week who gives it a theme and kind of makes it feel a bit different each week so that it doesn't get too repetitive. We then have a monthly all hands, which is on a Thursday afternoon. We serve drinks and, um, and snacks at it so that it feels, and it's at the end of the day, so it feels a bit more relaxed. Normally, um, 
people stay around for a drink with their co-workers afterwards. And that's got a, again, it's got a host, which is um, rotating as well. And it normally has a particular theme or topic um, so that people feel, you know, like they know what some of the bigger uh, priorities are for the company. And it's normally connected to something big that's going on at the time. So I guess there's a combination of different types of meetings. And then, you know, there are lots of one-to-one -one meetings. Everybody has a one-to-one -one with their line manager every week, which helps us sort of align on priorities in the right way. And um, so we do use a number of meetings. I think there's a lot of informal stuff. We do have lunch together and things like that. But at the size that we've got to, it's useful for uh, to have some type of like structure. And I think it also means that people don't feel like there's, you know, information asymmetry or stuff is being hidden from them. I think where that does happen, it's because we haven't been explicit enough about communicating it rather than because we're trying to keep things a secret. Now, Aaron, I've got a question for you because uh, oftentimes we'll talk about how in these meetings, different founders deal with problems. Do you have a certain time allocated within these meetings or is it as they come up? How do you integrate uh, the acceptance of failure and the transparency of failure from the different components when you meet? Because all those, like the meeting that you talked about, that sounds like all great, positive, amazing things. How do you weave in when a flower dies on you or breaks or something goes wrong? Super transparent, you know, and every week we share metrics and there are positive metrics and negative metrics. We don't beat every metric every week by any stretch of the imagination. So I think you need to do it in a transparent way. I think part of the skill that I've tried to learn and others have tried to learn is to share when things haven't gone according to plan without um, demoralizing people, especially the people that have been most closely involved with it. Everyone's tries their best and, you know, in different weeks and months, different areas get better because we've uh, set the targets wrong because stuff has happened that's outside our control. All sorts of things can happen. So we don't tend to um, like separate out good news from bad news. We tend to share all news together. And when something has happened that's not gone according to plan, we talk about why, we talk about what we plan to do about it. And then normally we sort of form a working group to work on it in more detail. So I think it has to be woven in with the good news rather than swept under the carpet or dealt with separately or anything like that. Gotcha. Excellent. Yeah. And, um, and is there any particular meeting uh, that you felt that was missing in a certain point that you were saying, we, I need to create this meeting rhythm because something is not working here? Um, yeah, there are lots. I think you know, it depends. It's a sort of case by case basis. I think the meetings we need to create in addition to our regular structure where there's like a particular sort of problem that we're that involves a large number of people that work in different areas that we're trying to sort of work to solve over a period of time. For example, we've been really trying to accelerate our growth internationally over the last few months. So we started doing international growth meetings every week, which involve everybody who's involved with growing our business internationally. Meetings like that are really useful because actually there's a lot of uh, brainstorming and experience sharing and stuff like that. So they are responses to areas where we think we can sort of like step change or accelerate our performance. Very, very interesting um, example. Very, very nice. Enjoyed this one. And I'm, I'm thinking because there is a, one of our, our members of the scale community is, is facing one of these issues about going international and 
having this top of mind is sometimes difficult. This is a very good idea of creating a meeting rhythm every week where we'll be discussing how to move the topic forward as it is one of our key priorities for yeah. uh, the company. And maybe just for a certain period of time, it will not be forever, just when the topic is really urgent to, to move forward. So coming to uh, the cash section, which is always so important for any uh, scale-up because if we run out of cash, we, we are out of business. And so what was your main learn? What were your main learnings uh, going from a series A to a series B and from a series B to a series C? Uh, let's start yeah. there. Yeah, I think uh, in the early days of fundraising, we underestimated how much everything would cost and how long it would take. That's probably a common learning. So it was to go through it again, I would probably um, try to raise more money each time we raise in the earlier days. It also takes a similar amount of time to raise a smaller amount as a slightly bigger amount. So I guess given that, we should have probably um, raised uh, a little uh, less frequently in slightly bigger amounts and given ourselves more runway to make more progress. That, that was the early days. And we then raised a sort of much larger amount in um, September of last year. And I think we, that was really our sort of reaction to this. We felt like we'd really proven the you know, direction and trajectory of the company and really wanted to succeed and um, we're confident that we could raise a bigger round with a great partner that we'd be able to use that to really accelerate our progress to reduce the frequency with which we um, fundraise to give ourselves a, a stronger balance sheet going forward. So um, I think now we're in a strong position and actually we've um, we spent a bit less of the money that we raised uh, back in September than we expected to. And we've, I think it's good to have it, but we also, uh, um, have just got a really strong focus on management for unit economics and, and trying to grow the business in a sustainable way. And um, any differences between, for instance, the Series B round and the Series C round that you raised uh, some months ago? Yeah, much larger amount for the Series C, with different type of investor, with different sorts of uh, working practices and expectations. And, they are Series C investors are, are quite focused on um, brand development and they've backed a number of other businesses where that's been an important part of the story. So they've, uh, they've really helped us in that area. So um, our Series B investors are based in Germany and they, um, they've helped on lots of stuff, particularly helped on our international expansion into that market. So um, often investors come along at a particular time and they have got particular areas of expertise that uh, help the company with different areas of focus. Very good point. Um, and um, yeah, something that I, that I was thinking, it's, you just uh, kind of opened the market. You started in the UK, you opened the, the German, the French and the um, Irish markets and you are yeah. thinking about keeping expanding across Europe. So it comes always in this industry, the typical question, uh, why not the US as a perfect yeah. market scale with one single language? Yeah, look, we would consider expanding into the US in the future. I think for now, we feel that um, US market is quite crowded. It would be a, a sort of quite binary bet for a company of our size to uh, invest in expanding into the US. Um, we 
we see less proof point that um, our model would work there. There are a lot of differences. The country is much bigger, so it requires a different uh, sort of logistical model to the model that we've been able to develop in different European countries. And I guess we just see more uh, source of competitive advantage for a company like ours expanding across Europe than expanding into the US for now. But we talk about it regularly and um, it's not something that we would rule out in the future. Got it. And of course, it always comes to my mind when I'm talking with, with a Series C company. So what's next? So it, it is already profitable to go by a, a profitability uh, game and maybe start and consider uh, strategic acquisitions or going for an IPO. So uh, do you think that in your kind of in your, in your company, in your strategy, it might make sense to raise a Series D or uh, you would go for another uh, strategic option? I know that you, maybe you can share too much because it might yeah. be a no, no, I don't mind sharing. At the moment, we only recently raised our last round, so we're not um, trying to fundraise again for now. We, um, the company's well capitalized for, um, for our current stage and for our growth ambitions at the moment. So. And um, for now, we are trying to improve the model, make customers more satisfied, grow our business internationally, and we're, we're well capitalized to do that. We, um, we keep an open mind about further funding and about some of the other things that you mentioned, but none of them are actually planned for now. Got it. Cool. So, and we come to uh, one of our favorite questions of, of the show before passing the word back to, to Ryan. Uh, and so I think that you already shared that if you would start again, maybe you would be raising a little bit more and uh, less often. Uh, but if you would have the opportunity again to, to meet yourself um, six years ago uh, at the beginning of Boom and Wild, so what kind of advice would you give to yourself uh, in order to even have even more success than what you already have? I think I underestimated how difficult lots of the areas would be. I definitely underestimated the technology and what it takes to build a, um, a great technology stack and um, uh, develop a culture that attracts great developers. Beyond that, I think we, I underestimated the brand and how difficult it would be to build a brand that's really sort of beautiful and special that people would love um, using and you know starting to identify with and in both of those areas, it took me longer than it perhaps should have done to realize that I needed to have other great people um, involved in helping me out in those areas. So, um, you know, there are lots of areas that we could have professionalized more quickly. Those are probably the two that if I was to start again, I would look to start with people that really understand how to scale up those areas. Uh, I always have this feeling when I'm concluding a call uh, in these episodes of the, of the podcast that I, we can extract much more from you and, uh, and share it even more with the audience. Uh, but Ryan, it's your, it's your time to kind of recap and compress the amazing learnings of today. Thank you, Aaron. Really a pleasure. No worries. And you are on mute. So just need to unmute first, Mr. Ryan. <laughs> Let me say that again. So here is what I've drawn from the day. This is uh, a, you know, somewhat of what I've taken. And as you see, there is a plant theme. And if I were to kind of wrap everything up, 
Um, one of the things that I noticed most, Aaron, is just your calm and your collected nature about all of this. And mm -hmm. I think that uh, it comes across very much like you could easily be a professional gardener. And you have this aura of patience and rationality, which maybe isn't associated with the startup founder who's going crazy and raising millions of dollars and all this stuff. And I think that um, from what you didn't say, but just your demeanor, I love that you're in the 0.02 something percent of the top 4% and you're calm about it. So I, I love that. And I think that the analogy here is really about the fact that when you're growing a plant or growing a business, the similarities are strikingly similar. You know, you've got the soil, you've got the foundation, you've got your team, you've got your growth, you've got your meetings, you've got this constantly checking in. You probably don't have as many resources as you need, but you keep bringing the resources and you keep things growing. So some of the things that stuck out in the garden of my mind is not being boring. The fact that you have these meetings, but the fact that you're changing them up, the fact that you have a host to run your meetings with different themes. I think that's something that's a bit fresh that we haven't really heard. And this idea of um, understanding that you had maybe underestimated, I think that the lesson is that your being cognizant of that has prepared you as you grow. So that now you're investing the same amount of time to raise more money and that you're looking at these larger international steps. And from what it seems like, there's a lot of calculation that goes on as opposed to just um, off the cuff running, running rampant. And you can't really run a garden off the cuff. You've got to look these things and think these things through. So I would say approaching a scale up like a garden, being patient, being prepared and tending to the garden. Uh, it sounds like there's a lot of tending that's going on and you've got to have those multiple elements and, and levels of leadership to make sure that all the plants are growing. So you initially said you were anywhere between a rose and a cactus. And so that's exactly what I had envisioned. And there you are. You've got the rose, you've got the cactus, and the third one that I forget, but I know that they're long lasting. Anta Maria. Anta Maria, okay. So again, another example of solving a real problem and it creating millions and millions of dollars of profit. Uh, I'm excited to see where you guys grow and I hear you about moving to the US. So instead I'm just gonna have to move to the UK and at that point you can send me flowers there or I'll send flowers there. How's that sound? Sounds good, keep me posted. I will. You know, I studied at the University of Reading, so I got to go back and oh, visit wow. my alma mater. Maybe, maybe I'll send them some roses. Who knows? Yeah, please do. My sister knows as well. Okay, excellent. See, it's a small world after all. Well, it is a small world, but it is, it is so difficult to make a small company big. And so that's why the time to be able to spend with somebody like you, Aaron, who really had that vision. I love that you knew you were going to get into something like this and you found it. Um, a pretty cool business to grow around flowers fitting through a slot that no one else could fit through. If you enjoyed this, uh, share it, like it, send some flowers to somebody overseas. Now we, as from the US, I can still send flowers, but they have to be delivered over there, right? Yes, you can send flowers. You can order from anywhere in the world and we deliver to UK, Germany, France, and Ireland. Perfect. Well, I'm gonna hit you up to use that for my connections to build better connections. Nothing better than sending flowers unless it's building a company that's making tens of millions of dollars delivering those flowers. So you've heard to hear, uh, you can find more of these episodes on scaleupvalley.com. We're here to bring you insights that you might not necessarily learn so you can grow your business in your garden, wherever that is. Aaron, Mike, great stuff. Uh, we will hopefully see you soon and um, keep delivering happiness.